and we are live. Welcome to another episode of the New York Information Security Meetup. And I have the great pleasure to introduce Nihil Antani, who is the uh, CEO and co-founder of uh, Horizon 3. How are you, Nihil? Hey, David. Great to uh, see you again. Yeah, we should stop uh, seeing each other like this every uh, every other Friday. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I've got a picture of you on my desk, so I see you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I'm super excited because we, even though we did a couple of sessions, we never got a chance to actually talk about your your background, which is uh, truly fascinating. You've, um, you know, if there was a graph of your progress um, in terms of your career path, it was like, it looks like basically a hockey stick. So you started as a software engineer, right? Uh, in your career, uh, right? A hands-on keyboard. And then, uh, and I'll let you maybe kind of, uh, I'm not going to steal your thunder. Maybe we'll talk a bit about your, uh, your background, how you got to be, uh, to where you are today. This your co-founder of a, of a, uh, yeah, a company startup. Thanks for, um, thanks for asking that. It, it's always, uh, kind of awkward to talk a little bit about some of this background, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you kind of the key moments of the career. So I, um, I've, I've always been in technology. My dad is a hardware engineer. Um, electrical engineer. And when I was, when I was a little kid, he would bring toys home from business trips. I'm six years old. He'd give me this toy robot, uh, Toby, the robot. You can Google it. It was pretty, uh, pretty cool, but he would have sabotaged it in some way, cut the resistor or done something. And I turned it on, excited to play with it and it wouldn't work. And my dad would say, here is a soldering iron, a multimeter and a screwdriver. Maybe you can figure out what's wrong. And at a very young age, he got me into technology and really helped me to understand how to troubleshoot, to be honest with you, how to debug um, problems. And, and, and for those toy robots early on, it was, hey, did the, is the current traveling from here to here? Yes, okay, then the problem must be on the, other side, on the other half of the board. Is it getting from here to here? No, okay, well, that's probably the section where it's in. Let's look now in this section to see what's going on. And sure enough, you can see the resistor that he cut that I've got to go solder back in. And that was at, at, at age six uh, to age nine, getting my first computer, dialing into bullpen board services, finding the, the anarchist cookbook and learning about, about uh, phishing tools and hacking and uh, teaching myself to code. So I've really been in the technology realm almost effectively my entire life. And so I, I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up in that uh, using technology to solve problems I cared about. And computer science as a degree was great because it's horizontal in nature, meaning it's a toolbox and I can apply those tools to solve a problem in the moment. I cared about finance, so I used computer science and software engineering skills to write a stock trading platform and automatically buy and sell stocks for me. I really got into uh, other topics and I would use my background and skills to, to learn about those different domains. And that kind of gets back to whether you're a founder or an executive or, or um, a person of, of curious mind in general, building a portfolio of skills that are really enabling and they give you this foundation from which to go solve really interesting problems. And that's kind of the approach I've taken in my career, which is I, I knew if I wanted to lead a company someday, and here I am at, at, at 20 years old as a sophomore at Purdue or 22 when I'm at IBM full time, I needed to have technical credibility, business credibility, uh, experience leading and running organizations and those became the foundational skills from which I was going to be in a position to make massive organizational change and business impact. And so early in my career, I was focused on technical credibility. I took jobs not for the title or for the pay, but for the people I would learn from. And early on, I took a job at IBM Poughkeepsie 
in 2002 when I could have gone to Silicon Valley, but the people I would have learned from at IBM Poughkeepsie were all the original architects and designers of the mainframe. And there was a lineage to original theory of computing to them. And so I felt I would learn more working with those people than I would in any of the other jobs that I had available to me, even though those other jobs were paying more money. And so in any career decision I've made, it's been early on, especially where am I going to learn the most and how are those learnings going to align towards this toolbox of skills that I know I need to have to become a successful business leader someday. And I'll pause, I'll pause there and I'll talk about a few other kind of cool aspects of that personal journey and growth, but hopefully that that whets the appetite for some follow-up. Yeah, up. for sure. And and again, just a reminder to for everyone, this this is broadcast live. So with all the blips and uh, you know, we can't even obfuscate some of the if we use uh, any foul language. But but uh, if anybody has questions, feel free, feel free. We're monitoring the uh, the different uh, you know sessions. So um, you know, it's really interesting that it's such an you know young age. You were kind of redirected to something you then liked and embraced. You know, as uh, you know, trying to I guess break and fix things or get things that are already broken and then fix those. Um, and then it's also super interesting that you mentioned that you picked uh, the jobs not for you know necessarily for the for the money or the pay, but also like in terms of where they're gonna get you. And I and I've seen that because you were the the CTO for Splunk, right? Yeah. And- that's right. Which is, by the way, it's amazing. Spunk is an amazing company, and and you've done you know a senior role there, uh, you know, climb your way from from IBM to uh, you know to, to uh, I think it was GE as well, right? Um, and then and then Splunk, but then you know I'm pretty sure you you know and then you you uh, you decided to go to the JSOC, right? To to a kind of government organization, and, and I'm assuming again just uh, that you got a pay cut, uh, but you decided to uh, to take that on on that role. So talk to me a bit about the kind of that journey that you took, uh, you know, throughout those years. Yeah, that's a great question. So if you, if you rewind a little bit before, so when I'm, I'm, I'm a, I've re- recently graduated from undergrad at, at Purdue, I'm starting my time at IBM and I don't know how it was for other people, but for me, learning about computer science in textbooks and in, and in class is very different than applying it to solve a problem. And so I came out with, with a degree, but I didn't really understand what I was doing. And I remember kind of limping along and struggling my first couple of years out of, out of undergrad because, yeah, I had skills. I knew how to, how to code tools and do things, but I didn't really understand enterprise software and computing or, or distributed systems at scale or anything like that. You kind of learn along the way. But what it took for, for the technology world to really click in my brain was ultra high pressure situations. So I, I remember getting this email from Steve Mills at the time. And, and for those that, uh, that uh, aren't familiar with IBM back in the 2000s, I am a, a nobody in the company. I'm a 24, 25-year-old band six or band seven employee, you know, the, the lowest you can get as a, as a full-time, very entry level. Steve Mills is a legend in software at the time, senior vice president, potentially future CEO of the company. And he sends out this email that says, Hey, we've got this customer in Germany. They have outages in their mainframes regularly. Nobody's been able to figure out what's wrong. This is a really big deal. Can somebody help? And he just kind of blasted this to a bunch of internal IBM communities. And here I am, the, the, the naive 25-year-old, replying back to Steve, skipping eight layers or lines of management, saying, hey, Steve, I, I, I actually know this area of where their pop problems could be technically because I'm a developer in it put me in the game and, and let me go see if I can help. 
And I remember my first line, second line, third line, fifth line being aghast <laughs> that this punk kid out of nowhere, who's a nobody, he's not even a, he's not a distinguished engineer. He's not an STSM. He's a nobody. And he just volunteered to go to the hardest customer that IBM had. And uh, in addition to realizing my, my, my arrogance or stupidity or confidence or whatever, I'm on a plane to Germany the next day. And I remember being absolutely wide-eyed as the German customer started to explain what their problem was. I had no idea what they were talking about. And, but then they said something about 30 minutes in, like, hey, wait, I remember one of my team leads at IBM describing this once in a design session. And then he said something else. And I'm like, oh, I remember this from undergrad in my operating systems course or my queuing theory class and blowing and so forth. I remember the moment under that high pressure situation where everything clicked in my brain. And I, I transitioned into kind of this apprenticeship phase of my career to active innovation, where I was, uh, I, from that moment on, I filed or I put together almost 70 patent applications of which I think 19 or 20 made it through the IBM process into the patent office and 16 or so are granted. But I remember flipping from uh, this apprenticeship to active innovation and it required a catalyst. And that catalyst was ultra high pressure situations to force things in my brain to connect. And this apprenticeship to active innovation transition is something I try to optimize for in every job. So when I left IBM, I had never been a manager before. I'd never managed people. And I got uh, uh, recruited to join GE, GE Capital, as a CIO. Uh, I was 32. I, I, effectively, I was one of the youngest CIOs ever in, in financial services at the age of 32. Never been a first-line manager. But what I had was significant technology experience. And what I needed was that high-pressure you know, catalyst to become very good at managing, leading, and, and, and transforming organizations. My time at Splunk, I never really... Um, helped build uh, go-to-market and sales at scale. I needed that job to, I used my previous experience to get the job, but then I used the job to be that catalyst to shift into active innovation for go-to-market, sales, sales engineering, customer success, federal, so on and so forth. So that backstory is for my transition from Splunk to the Department of Defense. I served as the first ever chief technology officer for Joint Special Operations Command. And without going too much into what JSOC does, uh, you can Google it and, and look it up for yourself. But then uh, Lieutenant General Miller, uh, who then became General Miller, commanded Afghanistan and, and so on, what he realized was JSOC and special operations in the DOD needed to transform to better leverage technology as a competitive advantage. So I had the background to do that job, but I used that job as the catalyst for me to become a better leader. And I learned more and grew more personally during that time in JSOC than in any other job in my career. And, uh, and all of those experiences from being a developer to, uh, I mean, I've had almost every job that you need in, in a successful startup. I've been a developer. I've been an architect. I've been in product management. I've been a sales engineer. I've been customer success. I've been an organizational leader as a CIO. I've helped scale, go to market as the Splunk CTO. And uh, I've done a whole bunch of, of interesting leadership development at, uh, at JSOC. And it's all of those enabling experiences that really set the conditions for me to be what I feel is an effective uh, founder uh, at Horizon 3. You know, it sounds like you, uh, you know, you embrace the, you know, the uh, hormesis uh, principle, basically, uh, 
you know, establishing yourself in such a, a place where you get some pr external pressure that requires you to step it up and uh, and then you embrace that throughout your career. And it's almost like the you uncover the kind of the secret sauce of how to be successful in, in it, essentially wherever, you know, wh whatever you do, right? Throughout your career, you embrace that at different situations. How would somebody, and this is almost like a, like a personal development thing where we can take, take ownership over that. How can someone embrace that in their own career if they wanted to, you know, is it just, uh, t you know, getting out of your comfort zone and, and seeking uh, these engagements where they're not, you know, not trivial? You, you took on, you took on um, a lot of these roles that you, you did not do you know, previously. For Even, for example, you're, you know, this is the first time as a CEO, as an executive for a startup, right? A company of your own. So, and I don't know, there's no manual for that, right? So it's like, okay, like how do, you know, how do you start, you start a company, uh, you raise funds, you go through the process of, of uh, you know, product development, market. I mean, there's so many moving parts and you decide to take ownership over that as well. Uh, how, how would somebody embrace that if they wanted to, um, to, to uh, mirror what you've done? Yeah, it's, um, so, so I'll kind of distill this down into, into, into three pieces or a couple of pieces here. The first piece is, You've got to be self-aware of what you're good at, what you're not good at, and what you must be good at to be effective. So for instance, while I was a, a pretty decent storyteller through college, I was a terrible, I mean, storyteller, like I go to the bars with my friends and tell stories with them laugh. I was a terrible presenter in front of uh, people, awful. I would get up in a classroom of 20 or 30 people, give a talk, and I'd be looking down at the ground or I'd pace back and forth. I'd have coins in my pocket and like be fidgeting around with stuff. And I realized I had to become very good at communications, both uh, speaking in front of small groups of people or an audience of 10,000, being able to write effectively and communicate through my writing concisely and with impact. And I was terrible at both of those. I accepted I wasn't good at it and I didn't cave, but I doubled down to get better at it. I started writing Often, you know, it takes a lot of courage, sadly, to post an original thought on LinkedIn. And when I first did it, it was grammatically incorrect. It was stupid. You know, you know, you think about the Stack Overflow re uh, reaction of of, of uh, anything you put up there is going to get torn down. But I did it as a way to pressure myself to become a better writer. I started writing more, providing more thought leadership to improve the written skills. I started forcing myself to teach classes and eventually get on stage in front of 5,000 people at large conferences or more. And I'd never done that before. And so this first step is recognizing you've got to know what you're good at, what you're not good at, and, and, and be capable of investing in yourself to get better. So that's kind of bare, uh, table stakes. After that, uh, think of it as be brave, your brand, and be bold. Be brave is... When I, I was on track to, to, to become a, a technical leader at IBM, and I, I left that path, you know, kind of the, the IBM DE path, distinction engineer path, I left that path to join product management. Totally lateral move. In fact, it was a pay cut for me within IBM when all things are, are said and done. And my, my technical colleagues were like, why the hell are you going to leave the technical path to be a DE or a fellow? and go be a product manager. Nobody respects IBM product management team anyways. They're a bunch of PowerPoint jockeys. <laughs> and I said, no, I need to learn how to launch products, bring products to market, uh, do uh, market analysis and planning. I have to learn how to do this, and I'm going to learn how to do this in the job. And 
And the skills I brought to the product management team was I had a significant amount of customer experience. So I was able to bring my customer experience, parlay that into learning how to do product management. Similarly, when I left, when I was at Splunk and I went to a, a dinner or an event in Silicon Valley, whether it was at Sequoia or any other VC firm, and, and your name tag says Splunk CTO, all sorts of folks wanted to talk to me. Uh, founders that wanted to get their companies bought, thinking I could influence that at Splunk. Uh, investors that wanted me to be an LP in their funds, so on and so forth. When I left Splunk and joined the Department of Defense, and I went back to those same events and my tag said DOD, nobody wanted to talk to me. All of <laughs> why, why is that? You'd think that DOD has a you know a tremendous budget and you'd think that people will go after and try to get uh, you know some of the influence in there. You, no, yeah, I, I mean, it's, uh, it was just shocking to me how how little people wanted to interact with and deal with. And also, it, it, whether we like it or, you know, as bold as people in Silicon Valley talk about wanting to change the world, at the end of the day, there's very little difference between Silicon Valley and Wall Street. Most people are very coin-driven. Um, and they use mission and purpose as a bit of a veneer of facade. And I'm sure I'll get some flack for this. But just the reality is they're coin-driven. If they don't see how you are going to affect some sort of deal flow or opportunity for them, they're not, they're not going to pay attention to you as much as they would somebody else. It's just, it's just time management to some degree. And I mean, even my wife on a daily basis reminded me what my, the difference in W2 was. But I viewed the, the time at JSOC, once again, be, be brave and, and make those hard decisions in your career and bias towards learning and improving yourself. The second part is your brand. Your, your external brand and internal brand is everything. And if you, you, you want to be able to uh, define and amplify the brand you want people to think of yourself. So for me, I wanted my brand to be an authentic thought leader. Authentic meaning I'm going to uh, tell you what's working, not working from my experience, what I think could work. I might be wrong, I may not, but I'm going to be very authentic in how I communicate with you written in a presentation, in a small meeting, or in front of 10,000 people. And so that brand became very much be an authentic thought leader and not worry about putting out dumb ideas with the thought that, hey, I'm going to be thinking about this enough that that I feel pretty comfortable that that uh, I could inspire a conversation with other authentic personalities around my ecosystem. And then the third was be bold. Uh, you get to a point in your career where if you get fired, you're probably going to get a pay raise somewhere else. And that was kind of my attitude, which is, which is I am going to be willing, I'm always going to do what's best for the business, not what's politically popular. And that, that hurt me in, in, in various meetings, especially at the executive staff at Splunk, where, where you know, doing what's best for the business wasn't necessarily a conversation, but rather understanding the political dynamics of the various other leaders and who cared about what. I hate that stuff. Um, while I could be good at it if I wanted to, it's just a, a, an emotional drain for me. And I would rather be surrounded by people that want to do what's best for the business. But be bold and be bold in that. Always um, say what you believe is correct, not what you believe is politically popular. And the worst case is you leave and take a job somewhere else. But don't sacrifice your mental health and personal happiness or your values and principles in order to... Uh, to stick around in a job because it's just going to make you miserable. Be bold in your thoughts. Be bold in your approach. 
and know you can always get a job somewhere else or you can start your own company. And Sneha, from my experience, uh, you know, working with startups and, and companies in, in general, uh, enterprise or not, you know, the the CEO has uh, a tremendous impact on the the attributes of the kind of the DNA of the company. How would you and I and I'll go into the inception of Horizon Three as well. But before we get into that, how would you apply these principles you just mentioned to the company to Horizon Three? Yeah, it's a great question. This goes back to my experience in special operations. So what makes special operations special is not that they can run run fast or swim far or shoot well or whatever. What makes people in special operations special is that they are learn-it-alls that can solve any problem as a team under pressure. That's what these special mission units and uh, special operations forces and so on select for. They are selecting for people that can work well in a team, that are adaptive, nimble, uh, can, can problem solve with limited resources and whatever. All of those are the, bare, the, 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 the foundational capabilities that make startups very dangerous, right? It's their ability to quickly adapt, to be learn-it-alls, to, to, to pounce and exploit new emerging business opportunities, and work well as a team under a tremendous amount of pressure and stress. And that was part of what drew me to leave industry and go serve within that community for almost four years. And, and so that, that culture and that DNA really underpins Horizon 3. Always do what's best for the company, not what's politically popular. Be a learn-it-all that can solve any problem under pressure as a team. And, and honestly, we don't need smart jerks. We need great teammates. And that really kind of underpinned the type of people that we, that we brought in. If you take that as the as the foundation of our culture, and then from there we're able to build out what other aspects of what makes special operations special, which is good ideas don't come from the top. What the top needs to provide is a North Star for vision, clearly defined left and right limits for the swim lanes of, of stuff that has to get done, and then empowering the right people and enabling them with resources to do the job. And then once you've set those conditions as a leader in the special operations community, you become a servant leader. Your job is now to enable and accelerate your people that are closest to the problem. And this idea of your people being coachable is one of their one of the attributes they have to have in place. You've got to be able to, as a leader, coach them and as a, as a, a teammate, be coachable to get better. And that's how we execute as a company, right? Uh, we have a clearly defined vision. I can tell you where we're going to be in five years, where we're going to be in two years, and what we're going to deliver over the next six months. But what my responsibility was, this is the five-year vision, this is the two-year vision, and leave it to the team to empower and enable them to get the, the zero to two years implemented. And honestly, as a you reach a point as a, as a good leader where you don't have anything to do. Now, all I can do is hurt the company if I get involved in a problem because I've hired people better than me, smarter than me, and specialists in their areas and for me as a leader, uh, you know you're starting to build the right team when I am now the student of my people. I am not, I am not uh, telling them what to do. They are teaching me how they're solving an insanely hard problem, which, which is kind of nirvana for any company. Sneha, I love the response. You know, you're the second person in a week that's telling me that as a leader, you have to make yourself redundant basically. <laughs> so that's exactly what you're, you're aiming for. And, and it's not without challenges. So let's talk a bit about, um, 
you know, the, before we jump into that, into like the inception of Horizon Three, I'm talking to a lot of founders. They've they've um, they typically have seen an issue or some you know big problem that wasn't solved, that wasn't available for them to solve, and they they jump into the deep end and decided to take ownership of that problem and, and find a solution. Is that also the case with you? Absolutely. I think that the best startups and the best founders uh, have personal experience with the problem they're trying to solve. And, and it's that personal experience for us that really compelled Tony and I to start the company. My personal experience goes back to my time at GE Capital, where I'm being asked what our security posture is, and I have no idea. I mean, I could tell you what our strategy is. I could tell you our vulnerability management program, but I don't know that we're secure until we've been breached. And by then it's too late. And what I wanted to do was proactively harden my systems. When my time at Splunk, I would go around and talk with all of our large strategic customers and partners. And the common question I get is, hey, are we logging the right data? Are our alerts correct and tuned? Are behavior analytics working? And my answer was, you got to wait for a breach to find out. Unfortunately, there's no way to, uh, at scale, proactively test and verify your security posture. And then my time in the DOD, similar experience. And in each of those endeavors, when I tried to proactively verify my security posture, I first started with vulnerability scanners. So I was a huge Qualys customer. I was a huge Tenable customer. And the problem with vulnerability scanners is you get 100,000 critical findings most of which aren't actually exploitable. And so of the 100,000 problems, maybe, maybe five or 10 are really serious that you've got to pay attention to, and the rest is just noise. So the hardest part of my job was deciding what not to fix. Because as a CIO uh, in financial services or as a CTO in the government, if you choose not to fix something, you are liable for that decision to somebody, whether it's the board, the regulators, or so on, so, you, so it became a very stressful process of deciding what not to fix. Well, I started bringing in pen testers and these consultants would show up once a year, poke us in the eye, tell us how stupid we are, leave behind a PDF report, and then disappear for 12 months. I'm like, great, well, one, you only tested a very narrow slice of my environment, number one. Number two is this PDF report is great, but as I fix them, I have no idea if I have truly remediated the problem unless I pay those consultants to show back up again. So in addition to having an incomplete snapshot of my, of my threat landscape or security posture, I also had a very long feedback loop for finding, fixing, and verifying issues. So then I tried to accelerate that find, fix, verify feedback loop with tools like Veridin. I was a big Veridin customer, uh, which did um, attack automation. And the issue there is I couldn't run it against my production systems because Veridin and other tools are not safe to run in production. Number two was I had to install credentialed agents everywhere, which I was tired of doing. And number three is I had to write my own custom attack scripts that matched my environment. And I didn't have the capacity to do that or the skills. And when my environment changed, those attack scripts had to change. And so my time in, on the DOD side made me realize, like, this isn't how attackers operate. Attackers don't install uh, credentialed agents everywhere up front and, and do custom attack scripts for your environment. They, what they effectively have are very adaptive algorithms, if you will, or approaches that are conducting reconnaissance and enumerating your environment, figuring out what you have, and then determining the next best action to achieve their objective, whether it's to steal data, destroy data, borrow for a future effect, whatever else that might be. 
And so when Tony and I started brainstorming, how do we proactively verify our security posture, um, accurately harden our systems based on what's actually exploitable, and then establish a sparring partner for our security team to, um, to be able to improve their posture, that would be pretty awesome. And if we can do that in a way that doesn't require agents be installed, custom scripts be written, or consultants or professional services be employed, and it's safe to run in production, we've got a, a, a multi-billion dollar company potentially. And that really became the design principles for what became Horizon 3. And we've implemented all of those design principles into the product and platform that we have today. So, you know, I have so many questions. Maybe I'll uh, try to have them in order. Uh, so one, uh, you know, just the stereotypical is like, did you sit with Tony in, in, in a coffee shop and it, with a napkin and kind of put a diagram of how that, you know, zero is going to look like? Or is that that's not really the case? Yeah, it's a little bit of that. So, so back to me as a leader, uh, and and having a very strong technical background, uh, I and and back to you know my, my experiences in this in this space, that really helped me to understand how to frame the technical solution. I didn't have to implement it. And as a technologist, it's not about being great at writing code, especially as a technology leader, but rather being able to frame complex problems into the right technical assumptions in order to deliver that 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 capability. So. If you understand technology well enough, you can break down a problem into its, its, into its components. You understand where you're making big leaps of faith, and you're able to uh, uh, understand the competitive advantage you're going to create with that technology. And that's really where I've, I've kind of honed my skills. So I said, all right, if I'm going to continuously attack my environment, really my environment is a graph. If I think about a knowledge graph that represents all the hosts, ports, services, uh, credentials I found and so on, I think if I viewed my uh, cyber terrain, if you will, or attack surface as a knowledge graph, I could then do knowledge graph analytics to find paths through that graph from point A to point B. And think of like Google Maps almost, where here's my starting point. Uh, the destination is going to be one of a few options. The destination is steal sensitive data, compromise and become a domain administrator and so on. But from this starting point, what is the Google map path throughout that knowledge graph to achieve that objective? And that's really how I initially framed the problem on a whiteboard myself. I then gave uh, Tony a call. We jump on the phone, we start talking it through. Uh, when we're together, we start whiteboarding it. And really Tony's job was to debate me and say, hey, you are completely full of BS. This isn't gonna work and here's why. Or to help iterate on this to make it more of a, of a, of a practical reality. And once we got a pretty good understanding of the framing of the problem, the prototype, and Tony took the task of building the prototype, I took the task of pitching the idea to people in my network. So I went to Brad Peterson, who's CIO of the NASDAQ and a, and a, a mentor and friend of mine. I said, hey, Brad, what do you think about this idea of continuously pen testing to harden your systems? And Brad's like, I love it. I went to Mike Fabrico, who is uh, kind of the, the Kevin Bacon of cybersecurity. He's, he's two degrees separated from everybody. Hey, Fabrico, what do you think about the, this idea? And my job became understanding how to tell the story. Tony's job became building a basic prototype. And his prototype was run an Nmap scan, pipe its output into Neo4j, and then write an algorithm to select what Metasploit module to run based on what was in Neo4j. That was the basic prototype. 
Tony runs that prototype against his home and he found a default web server running on his audio card that he had no idea was on his network uh, with default user ID password that would have given an attacker access to, entire, to his entire home network. And he goes, holy crap. I, he, he's like, I am very secure. I had no idea this was there and that I was vulnerable and the prototype proved it. And so I now have story validation from my job. Tony's got prototype validation from his task and we brought that together into a seed pitch to raise venture capital. Yeah, that's amazing, amazing story. And and uh, shameless plug, we we I will have the chance to to talk to uh, Fabrico in a couple of weeks from now. So looking forward to having that conversation as well. Um, you know, I love, I love the analogy with Kevin Bacon. And uh, you know, here's the thing too. So when you develop a startup, sometimes timing and circumstances everything, right? So you know, if I recall correctly, you know, they were trying to, you know, create uh, electric vehicles back in the 70s and 80s, but the right, it wasn't the right time. What makes this environment different right now that makes Horizon 3 the kind of the perfect, uh, you know, perfect opportunity for it to, to take uh, take ownership of the marketplace of, of automated pen testing? Yeah, you're you're right on. Being early is the same as being wrong in, in startups and in venture. So, you know, if Horizon 3 was started... 10 years ago, would that have been too early? I don't know, I, I, probably it would have been too early. So what made the conditions right today is, I'll give you a customer example first. In seven minutes and 19 seconds, our autonomous pen testing product fully compromised a bank in seven minutes. And that bank had every Gucci security tool you could buy. They had Splunk as their seam, CrowdStrike as their EDR, so on and so forth. They were doing all the right things. Yet in those seven minutes, not a single security alert got triggered as we became a domain administrator. And so the question is, you know, we don't, we don't have a tools problem in cybersecurity. We have an effectiveness problem. People have been buying all of these tools from different vendors. They're not designed to work together. There's lots of tuning and configuration. And there's a lot of marketing hype for what, it, what these tools can and cannot actually do. And so now with this huge amount of spend, one of our, we have two primary use cases. One of them is using us as a sparring partner to improve that security effectiveness and in many ways help rationalize that security spend to prove to leadership that you are effectively defending uh, your enterprise. And I think it required security tools sprawl in order for the effectiveness problem to become important to solve. And then in addition, the, the, the significant increase in cyber attacks over the last five years has further increased pressure for proactive systems hardening. Yeah, Separate. sounds, sounds so, like, a, like a perfect storm almost now. Like there's a, you know, there's just so many elements that come together, like, you know, the, the lack of security professionals with the right tool set, um, you know, there's uh, there's a immense like data scale problem because you know all this all these you know security tools are spitting out information that nobody can really figure out what how to take control of it um you know the attack surface is almost endless right now right so it seems like there there are just so many elements that are creating this perfect storm of uh, us being vulnerable as a you know as an enterprise as a society in general you're right on in fact um the there's also a cultural shift a mindset shift over the last 10 years 10 years ago, cybersecurity was basically a compliance checkbox in most organizations. And, and it was a compliance mindset, do the bare minimum to check the box, 
so that regulators get off my back. Now, if you look at the mindset, at least for, for uh, uh, effective and competitive organizations, security is not a compliance checkbox. Security is a competitive advantage and a key instrument of business operational risk. And that's only going to increase. So back to timing of, of Horizon 3, if, if I don't know that Horizon 3 would be successful in a compliance-minded community. In fact, we see with our customers uh, and our prospects, if I'm on a prospect call, I can pretty quickly figure out that, hey, this CIO or CISO still views security as a compliance checkbox. And I, my guidance to the sales team is, you know what, let's not waste our time. They will get hacked. They will be in the news. That guy will get fired or that person will get fired and we will easily sell to their replacement. Let's move on and find those that actually view security as different than compliance. Uh, and I think that in, in 22, security for most organizations, security is much more important than compliance. And I think that in 25 and beyond, there's going to be a very clear distinction between compliance and security. So what makes the tool so effective? Why did it only take seven minutes? Sounds almost like, you know, far-fetched. It's such a short time. Like, you know, I imagine like the security administrator, like just walking over to the coffee machine comes back and, uh, you know, and they're like their own, their pawn, basically, their whole organization. It just sounds like almost crazy to me that a bank, especially a bank where, you know, the, the I guess the cybersecurity maturity level is there. It's not some, you know, some widget manufacturer out of whatever, somewhere in the middle of the state. Um, you know, it's a very highly sophisticated financial organization. What caused that, that you know, you know, the vulnerability and like that, you know, was able to, to get, get breached in such a short time. Yeah. So, um, so that particular attack, uh, the, the, the two major events that occurred, the first major attack event was, uh, we turned on a tool called responder, which is grabbing, uh, it takes advantage of misconfigurations in DNS that allows NTLM hashes to be passed along the wire. And so when you turn on this listener, it's basically, doing a man in the middle and DNS poisoning, right, to some degree. And it is receiving, so, so the way it works is a service is trying to look up and connect to another service. So machine one's trying to talk to machine two. Machine one says, as part of the DNS misconfiguration, who out in my world is machine two? And they'll kind of do this, this big broadcast. And then machine two will say, oh, that's me. Here is my information. And the machine two will reply back, and that's how the connection will occur. Well, what Responder will do is it will respond to every broadcast that says, oh, it's me. So when Machine 1 says, who out there is Machine 2, Responder will say, hey, it's me. Please send me your hash to try to log in. And then the, and Machine 1 will send it its hash. This is a misconfiguration. It's not a vulnerability. It's not a CVE. It's a known misconfiguration that's very typical in organizations. So in this example, Responder turns on and, and it starts collecting hashes. The company had a very weak password policy and, or if they had a password policy that was strong, it was weakly enforced. And so all the hashes that we collected, we automatically started cracking through our hash cracking process. And that's a dictionary attack against the hash to try to figure out what the password is. And another customer, 33% of their passwords were company name one, two, three, explanation mark. Similar type of scenario here. So we got a bunch of user IDs, we got their hashes and we cracked their hashes. From there, we found the domain controller had SMB running, which is, once again, another misconfiguration. It's not a CVE. Vulnerability scanners aren't going to find it. And then we started logging in with each user ID password we had access to. 
Now, we weren't trying three different passwords for the same ID. That would have triggered a bunch of Splunk alerts. We tried each user ID password only once. And then we started validly logging in. And then we'd look up, hey, what are the permissions of this user ID? Oh, they're a domain user, which means we could access all the systems and services that that user could access. And we grabbed a domain admin. So we were able to log in and have admin rights to the domain controller. And, and, and once you've got admin rights to the domain controller, you've got keys to the kingdom. So the problems were DNS misconfiguration with L11R, weak or default credentials that were allowed easily cracked, and uh, SMB uh, enabled on the domain controller that allowed us to, to, to log in without any, any uh, uh, challenge or authority. And SMB, you can't apply multi-factor authentication to SMB. It's a low-level protocol. So why did Splunk and these other tools not, not help? Well, we had no invalid logins, uh, or we didn't trip any of the, hey, this machine is logging in too many times because you can throttle it. So none of the Splunk alerts were going to go off. Uh, we didn't dump LSAS or other typical activities that malware is going to do on a single machine. Uh, and so none of the EDR tools like CrowdStrike are going to get tripped. And uh, we weren't, we weren't uh, oddly moving between machines, so none of the user behavior analytics tools are going to trip so on and so forth. And this is honestly almost verbatim what ransomware organizations do. They are going to take advantage of misconfigurations like L11R. They're going to harvest your user IDs and, and passwords and credentials and hashes. They will either crack those hashes or try to see if you've reused your Netflix password for your corporate password and log in. And then attackers don't have to hack in with zero days. They log in with credentials that they've harvested in some way. And that is probably the predominant technique that uh, ransomware gangs, APTs, national you know, organizations, and so on, apply in their cyber attacks. Yeah, it sounds to me like the traditional methods of trying to detect these these uh, you know breaches is is fault faulty because it's so hard to create a signature. The, the it's just like the whole thing between the difference between malware and a virus, right? Or anti, like antivirus has signatures, but the malware. Is almost endless possibilities and and in morphism. So that's also the case where, as you mentioned, you you created an attack that did not be able, they were not able to detect because it was different, and the, and that's what you know the adversaries do because they continuously, you know, try new exploits and try new zero days which are not av available to uh, to the public and so on. So when you find a vulnerability like that, do you do you help? Uh, the customer and provide them assistance in terms of how to to uh, patch it. And then I guess the the next question will be, you know, what do you do then? Do you run the tool again to figure out if there was? Uh, and I'm assuming you're nodding, so maybe I'll let you continue. Yeah, no, you're you're right on. So, uh, um, you know, don't just tell me what my problems are. Help me figure out how to fix them and verify. Them. Back to my experience as a practitioner, I don't need consultants showing up and telling me what my problems are. I need them to help me find, fix, and verify. And so that's really how we designed the product, which was in a, the, we are, most of our users are IT admins and network engineers. They are not pen testers, but in three clicks, they have the power of a 20 year pen testing veteran. That's really how we designed the product. So you've got a network engineer who in three clicks is running a very comprehensive pen test against their environment. And, and, they're, you know, and that environment is, is attacking your vCenter, your vRealize, your Cisco gear, your Apache software, your WebSphere environments, and it's in your Active Directory, and it's chaining together ways to compromise your organization. So uh, what we'll do is customers will run us to find problems. 
We will then provide all of the path, like these are the attack paths we were able to uh, uh, compromise. This is all the proof of exploitation along the way. So you know this is a real issue. Uh, this is the impact of why it's a big deal and why you should fix it. And then here are the recommended fix actions for the, the critical problems that we found. And from that becomes the starting point for the fixers to go off and solve these problems. And as they patch their VMware or improve their password policy or, or, or fix a misconfiguration in Jenkins, they will rerun the pen test to verify that it is no longer exploitable. And that find, fix, verify loop is really our aha moment. And then as you run find, fix, verify over and over and over again, we collect all of the data and metrics to provide more accurate reporting of your posture to your boss, to the board and your regulators. Because now we can accurately tell you how long did it take for you to um, uh, fix a critical finding that was identified by us as one example question. Yeah, and that continuous, uh, you know, testing is something that needs to be done. You can't, as you mentioned, you can't do it just once a year. You know, environment right now are just so so dynamic as well. I mean, people are spinning off applications, uh, you know, servers, uh, you know, in the cloud, whatnot, and it is it, in the need of a continuous monitoring for vulnerabilities. Something that is being required. So, how often do uh, the people, uh, you know, your current users and customers, how often do they deploy this and run these tests? Yeah. Uh our customers shift from running one to two pen tests a year mm -hmm. to pen tests every day, multiple times a day wow. uh, in this find, fix, verify. Some of them will wire us as an API into their DevOps process. So as they deploy to stage or production, they'll automatically trigger a pen test to, to assess their environment. Others will run pen tests where they'll do a no notice pen test to measure the reaction time of the SOC. And then they'll do a yes notice pen test where they've notified the SOC and then them and the security team collaborate to harden their environment. And then you've got some that are going to do very narrowly scoped verify ops for a particular data center or manufacturing facility or hospital. And you've got um, longer pen tests running across the entire organization. And what happens is you end up building very interesting annual campaign plans, if you will, for how to test your defense in depth and your, your security posture. And all this is a great segue to, honestly, the future of, of cyber warfare, you know, kind of the, the topic of, or at least the title of the session, which is if it took us seven minutes today to fully compromise a bank, as we get more training data, as we improve our algorithms, we should be able to get that down to two minutes or a minute in a couple of years. If you think about it in a minute or hell, even seven minutes, a human is, it is very difficult for a human defender to see the alerts, characterize the risk of those alerts, correlate those alerts into an integrated attack path, determine what uh, operating procedure to execute, get permission to execute it, and then stifle the attack. That's, those are the decisions at the human level that have to be done as a cyber incident starts to occur. At seven minutes, maybe they have a chance. At a minute, there is no way in hell a human is going to be able to stifle that attack. And we know that ransomware gangs are already shifting from automated ransomware to autonomous ransomware. And so it's coming. In defense, the human is going to become the bottleneck. And the problem with every security tool today, defensive tool, is it is human-centric. So the future of cyber warfare will be algorithms fighting algorithms with humans by exception. And we're already seeing that trajectory. And sadly, I think, 
it's going to get worse before it gets better because attackers will adopt autonomous attacks faster than defenders can improve their security effectiveness. And if you take that as a baseline assumption and you stack on top of that three, uh, two additional things. The first is the attack surface for an organization is becoming incredibly complex. If you are the CEO of Pfizer or Walmart or Maersk or any global 100 company, you have a very complicated supply chain, uh, which is creating a bunch of attack vectors. You have a distribution chain that has a profound impact on your revenue stream. You have your own internal IT systems and OT systems, your uh, uh, oil refinery plants, your uh, oil rigs, your pipelines, and so on and so forth, or your, your uh, manufacturing facilities. And you've got a very complicated people dimension of insider threat and other ways humans are going to be able to compromise your environment. So the attack surface has exploded exponentially over the past five years and will continue to grow significantly. And the single biggest business operational risk to a global 100 company will be its cyber risk, not just of its internal IT and OT systems, but IT, OT, people, supply chain, and distribution. And I'll give you an example of distribution. The, when the Ever Given veered off course and jammed up the Suez Canal for six days, oil prices rose 4%, and uh, global distribution of uh, just, you know, delivery of goods was completely disrupted, which had a significant effect on the manufacturing industry, retail industry, and so on. Effects we're still reeling from. If that was a cyber attack, and we've seen the Russians have spoofed maritime GPS 8,000 times in, over the past three years. Uh, a ransomware group compromised a ship traveling from Djibouti to Cyprus, navigating through the Suez Canal. There is, it is absolutely possible for a cyber attack to jam up the Suez Canal or other maritime choke points and disrupt the global distribution and supply chain. And that affects said manufacturing and a whole bunch of industries. So the attack surface becomes very complicated. The second part, though, is stacked effects. So there's three things in the future. Humans, by exception, incredibly complex attack surfaces becoming the single biggest risk to CEOs and COOs globally. And the third is what I call stacked effects, which is today cyber attackers are, are, are attacking one, one part of the environment at a time. Like the colonial pipeline attack was a single discrete attack by a single threat actor. An oil refinery attack was a separate discrete event uh, by a different attacker. It is only a matter of time before nation states, terrorist organizations, and criminal gangs start to synchronize their attacks across the supply chain. So imagine what happens when, uh, whether it's uh, the Iranians or a Russian gang or a proxy uh, for some national interest or political ideology, synchronizes a cyber attack in the Suez Canal to jam up and increase oil prices within a cyber attack on a major oil refinery to disrupt supply chain or, or, or manufacturing, and then a cyber attack on the pipelines to disrupt distribution. If those three cyber attacks occur in synchrony, oil prices are going to spike 100 to 1,000 X. And if you time that during an election or you time that during uh, the winter, or other things like that, you now have catastrophic geopolitical ramifications. And so when I think about the future of cyber warfare, humans by exception, but the attackers have the advantage because they're gonna get autonomy faster than humans get effectiveness. 
You talk about a complex uh, attack surface that is far more than your IT systems. It's your distribution, your supply chain, your IT, your OT, and your people. And you've got the ability to execute stacked effects below the threshold of war uh, so that you can achieve a political or national objective without the fear of getting bombed. That's the future. And I think that um, proactively hardening your systems is going to be a critical part of systematically reducing that business operational risk for these organizations. Yeah, amazing summary. And I and I have to tell you, you know, the way I describe it, almost like sounds like our industry is, is going to the same way your your little robot back when you were six years old uh, was going and malfunctioning, and you managed to get it fixed. And I think you're working towards getting this fixed as well in reducing the attack surface of this organization, which is very much in demand. Uh, but we're running out of time, and Stihel, it's been a real pleasure having you today. I, I'm looking forward to, to having more of these conversations. In the meantime, uh, I always ask this question, what's the easiest way to get hold of you and, and maybe look into uh, Node Zero and Horizon 3 and so on and, and just get some advice from you as well? Yeah, excellent. So um, so one, you know, obviously the website, horizon3.ai, uh, we, we designed the website to be very educational and not commercial. And so there's lots of really interesting detailed write-ups and explanations, whether it's ransomware or uh, attack blog posts and so on. So the website's the best way to learn about the product, uh, horizon3.ai. Uh, easiest way to get in touch with me is to add me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can message me on LinkedIn and I will almost certainly reply back pretty quickly. Uh, I Once again, back to, I, I just love engaging in the network. I try to provide as much thought leadership as I can. Uh, once again, I, I'm, I'm certain I'm wrong, but I love to, uh, to engage in conversation so I can get right in my thinking. And then uh, other typical social media channels, but LinkedIn and the website are probably the two best ways to get in touch with me and to learn more about the product. Super. Thank you very much, Nehal, for joining us today. And thanks for all for joining. Looking forward to seeing you at the next event. Until then, stay safe and uh, be well. Thank right, you again. Thank you.